everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a weekly true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Welcome back, listeners. Hey, y'all. Really quick, before we get started, we do have a couple announcements. First, uh, this will be our last episode of 2019. Uh, We decided to take a couple weeks off to enjoy the holidays and spend time with our families and friends. I can't believe it's been four months. I know. Four whole months. Time flies. August, September, October. No, five months. August. Yeah, almost. Yeah, five months. Um, But don't worry. We'll be back January 8th, 2020, which leads me to announcement number two. Starting in 2020, Homicide Homegirls is going to be switching things up a little bit. Uh, Amanda and I talked and we've decided to dial it back a bit and release episodes bi-weekly. So twice a month instead of weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, um, we're going to change the format a little so because we're going bi-weekly. Um, I'm going to lead an episode, probably the first episode of the month, and then Amanda will lead the other. Um, while we've really enjoyed the podcast and we adore and appreciate all of our fans and followers, I can personally say that I need to take a step back mm-hmm. um, between family obligations with my husband and kids and working full time. Releasing an episode every week is getting to be a little overwhelming. Yeah, and our initial plan was to like have this overabundance of pre-recorded episodes and mm-hmm. it, it just it didn't, didn't happen work. that way. And I mean, maybe we'll get to that point. Right. Um, but, uh, but life is crazy and hectic, right? as usual. <laughs> but we definitely didn't want to just stop because we really do enjoy bringing you guys true crime content. So Amanda and I talked about it and came up with this new format. So starting January 8th, 2020, Homicide Homegirls will release episodes twice a month. One episode led by myself and one led by Amanda. And this isn't to say that we won't ever get back to releasing weekly episodes. Yeah. But for now, it just isn't in the cards for us. So yeah, we need to, in, in order to avoid letting it go 100%, this mm-hmm. is what is going to work right. for us right now. This was our compromise. So we hope you guys will stick with us and continue listening. And if you want to give us some feedback on this change, feel free to message us. Yeah. We love hearing from you guys. Right. Now that we have those out of the way, let's get into today's episode. Also, on Wednesdays, we talk murder. Right. So, today we're going to discuss various murders that took place on or around Christmas in the years 2008, 2009, 2011, and 2016. Okay. And I kind of liked our Halloween-themed mm-hmm. episode we did, so... Since this is our last episode before we take our holiday break, I figured it'd be interesting to cover some Christmas murders. So I started Googling, and honestly, I was very surprised by how many murders have taken place on or around Christmas. Yeah, I automatically knew that when you were like, maybe I should do Christmas, I was like, oh gosh, John Monet. Right. But we, as bad as we want to do that episode, that, that case, mm-hmm. it's just, I know. it'd be like a six-parter. Right. And I feel like sometimes it's overdone. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I don't know. <clears throat> this is a little side note today. I was, um, I was like looking up just some random, because I feel like sometimes we cover murder, too many murders, or sometimes I feel like we cover too many um, of the same type. So mm-hmm. I was like, maybe we need more unsolved. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I was looking at a bunch of, like, I came up with, like, 10 or 12 mm-hmm. unsolved. Okay. Or, or missing or disappeared, like, never solved or never even recovered. Okay. And. Just missing. Some of the dates, like, was, like, now, like, anniversary dates. I was oh, like, okay. Because you know how we try to keep that, that trend that going. Line, right? Yeah. So, so, I was like, of course, maybe we'll have to wait the next year. Okay. <laughs> but, um. The number of murders that have taken place on or around Christmas was kind of astonishing, honestly. Uh, you know, it was shocking that was supposed to be the happiest, most joyful time of the year was the exact opposite for the individuals included in today's episode. Um, so today we're going to discuss the Covina massacre that occurred on Christmas Eve 2008, the murder of Robert LeCompte on Christmas Day 2009, the Christmas murder of Michelle O'Dowd in 2011, and the murder of Trisha McCauley on Christmas Day 2016. Never heard of any of those. Good. But the Christmas Eve 2008 kind of, that was our first Christmas in college. It was. <laughs> it snowed that year. Oh, it did. Yeah. It did. I forgot about that. Yep. So first, we're going to talk about the Covina Massacre, which is... I hate that word. But I know, but that's what this case yeah. has come to be called. So it happened on December 24, 2008 in Covina, California. So 45-year-old Bruce Pardo was not having a good time in life. He was broke, he didn't have a job, and his divorce from his wife, Sylvia, had just been finalized on December 18th. So like a week prior. Right. And reportedly, Sylvia left her husband because she found out that Bruce had walked out on his first family. So So she she didn't know. He didn't tell her any of that. So because he walked out on his first family, she walked out on hers. You'll see why. So apparently, Bruce was in his 30s and he fathered a child with his then-girlfriend, Elena. And when their son was just over a year old, Elena left to go grocery shopping, leaving Bruce in charge of watching their son. So while Elena was gone, the toddler <clears throat> somehow wandered into the backyard. I know where you're going with this. And he fell into the pool. Oh, no. So Bruce found his son unresponsive in the pool. Mm-hmm. And when Elena got home from the grocery store, you know, instead of doing your normal thing, putting the groceries away, she found her husband holding, or boyfriend. Then boyfriend. Yeah. Holding their lifeless son in his arms. Mm-hmm. So they immediately, you know, raced their son to the hospital. And even though he received the best care possible, his near drowning caused severe brain damage. And the young boy would be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. So he oh, didn't die. The, the but, amount of guilt, though. Right. So and shortly after. Blame. Right. So shortly after this, Bruce financially settled with Elena, but he walked away and never saw his son again. You know, this is one of those situations that I. You don't know how you react. Mm-hmm. Especially, I feel like the mother. Like, had the mother been in Bruce's shoes, mm-hmm. it would have been different. Right. Because there's a different bond when you're a mother. But, uh, like I said, Bruce never told his wife, Sylvia, about his son that he essentially abandoned. But I, I will say it, it takes a lot to care for, you know, somebody that's... Special needs. Right. So... Mm, you say he financially to... settled with her. He just... I don't know what exactly that means, but I guess 
he paid her off. That sounds bad. It does sound bad. Um, I don't know. Maybe he gave her some money and was like, I'm signing over my rights. I can't do this. But I mean, mean, imagine, Mm -hmm. you know, just one negligent act changes the rest of your life. And he, I mean, it was probably hard for him to see Mm -hmm. his son. I mean, I'm not saying what he did was right. Right. But that had to be tough. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Sylvia had three children from a previous relationship, and Bruce had never been anything but really great, you know, with her kids, so she couldn't imagine him walking out on his disabled child. So, when she found out about Bruce's lies, she decided to leave him because she couldn't stand the idea of what he had done. I wonder how she found out. I don't, I don't know. I, didn't I know. I'm but just... So digging myself into a rabbit hole. Right. So Bruce was upset about the divorce. Right. Like, so, like well, f- well, first of all, he had suffered enough already, and then now she I, left him. Yeah, maybe so he it's like, felt like it was just piling he, on. And he felt like it was never going to go away. Right. Like, so this is, this is rough. So I don't think I told you anything about this. No. But on Christmas Eve 2008, Bruce decided to take drastic action. So Pardo, or Bruce, put on a Santa suit, complete with a fake beard, drove to the home of his former in-laws, Joseph and Alicia Ortega. So that's Sylvia's parents? Mm-hmm. Where they were hosting a Christmas party with 25 family members in attendance. The adults were in the dining room playing cards or poker, and the children were in another room playing video games. One of the Ortega's grandchildren, 17-year-old Michael, was upstairs on the computer. So, another of the Ortega's grandkids, an eight-year-old little girl, saw someone walking up the driveway carrying presents just before midnight on Christmas Eve. So, I guess it was like an evening party, mm-hmm. you know, lasting all through the night. You know, we're from South Louisiana with bonfires, so you're yeah. up all night. We, do, um, we don't do it up until midnight, but right. my immediate family, we do presents on Christmas Eve. Okay. So... Bruce knocked on the door of the home, and when the little girl realized it was Santa, she ran to the door to let him in. Eight, I feel like this is eight, a really bold yeah. move he's about to make. Yeah. Eight-year-old little girl. So when she opened the door, Bruce immediately shot her in the face with a 9 millimeter handgun. Oh, my. And it just That's gets, not what I was expecting. No, it gets worse from here. Dressed as Santa. Because, I mean, I guess... You know, he figured they were going to answer the door. Especially, like, a kid might see him and answer the door. And this is his niece. Like, he was married to Sylvia. That is not where I thought you were going with this. Yeah. So, once the little girl fell to the ground, Bruce walked into the home and began shooting at basically anything that moved. People were, like, frantically running around the house trying to find hiding places. And some even hid under the dining room table. So several family members recognized him as the ex-husband of yeah. Sylvia. Was she their there? relative? Yes, that was his target. Yeah. So after shooting his eight-year-old niece, Bruce continued through the home. She didn't live, did she? She. Yeah, she did. But we'll get there. But. Oh my God. Um, so he continued through the home, shooting the Ortega's son James, and then his brother Charles. And the men even both attempted to stop Bruce after they had been shot. Wow. 
So Bruce then found the group hiding under the dining room table, which was 80-year-old Joseph and 70-year-old Alicia. So his, his in-laws, in-laws. His, his mother-in-law and his father-in-law. Oh, my gosh. He shot and killed them. Then Bruce found his ex-wife and her sister, Alicia. And so there was two Alicias. Hmm? Oh, yeah, I guess so. The mother-in-law and the sister-in-law. No, it was her sister. 70-year-old Alicia is yeah, the, and Sylvia's the mom, and then this is Sylvia's sister is Alicia. Alicia. Yeah. So Bruce shot and killed Sylvia and her sister as well. The only sibling to escape the attack was another sister named Letitia. She was actually the mother of the 8-year-old who answered the door, oh, wow. and she was able to escape the house with her daughter. Wounded daughter. Mm-hmm, who somehow also miraculously survived. Oh, my gosh. So... Letitia and her daughter ran to a neighbor's house and called 911. Um, a 16-year-old granddaughter of their Ortegas was also shot in the back, but survived. You would think that what Bruce had already done was enough, but no, he wasn't done. Oh my gosh. He proceeded to open one of the gift-wrapped packages he'd brought with him, which contained a homemade flamethrower. Oh my god, what a psychopath. He then doused the entire first floor of the home in racing fuel and using the flamethrower set the house on fire. And Michael, who I previously said was upstairs on the computer, was trapped and he was murdered. I was remember you saying that and I was like, why well, Why did she include that? But now I see right. the connection. So, so, so he, I mean, he probably heard the noise but didn't come down. Right. Hang on, I want to show you the pictures because I have pictures of the house. Uh, and so, okay, it was a party of 20. Okay, so that's him. Mm-hmm. Those are the parents. Mm-hmm. Those are the two brothers. I think this one is Sylvia. And those are the two that were. That's the house. Oh my god. In the aftermath. And we'll post these pictures. Oh wow. So the whole house just was basically gone. I mean, when you have accelerant, that usually... Racing fuel, right? Yeah. And so, there was 25 people at the party. Mm-hmm. I'll get... I'm okay. Gonna, yeah. So... I'm trying to account for everyone. It took 80 firefighters <gasps> an hour and a half to control the blaze. Oh, my God. Right. And when they say control the blaze, they don't mean... Control. Put it out. Yeah, mean, no, it's just under control. Yeah. Like... So, in total, Bruce killed nine and injured three people that Christmas Eve day. In, and, or that and, Christmas Eve night in 2008. And those other people, to equal the 25, just were lucky. I guess they were able to run and escape. Escape, yeah. He, Bruce was burned badly in the ensuing fire that he set with second and third degree burns on his arms. And the pants of his Santa suit even melted. Good. You know, that is one injury that I cannot freaking stand i cannot stand to be burned right my hand, when terrible. i use my hot hair tool oh my god mm-hmm. i can't stand it so i'm glad that he had to suffer right but bruce still changed clothes having to peel the pants off of his body with portions of the polyester staying fused to his skin so bruce left this you know left the scene of the crime then drove to his brother's house 30 miles away and when his brother arrived home later that evening, he found Bruce dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Right. 
And oh, I was going to say, why wouldn't he just shoot himself on at the house? You know what right. I'm saying? But I guess he wanted his brother to find him. I don't know. That's, I, I don't even want to try to begin to understand this, man. Yeah. So Bruce had parked his car a block from his brother's house. And when police found it, they discovered that he had raped the car with explosives, which were set to go off when someone removed the Santa suit from the vehicle. What? Did it work? The bomb was safely detonated by the police and no one was injured. Oh my so, god, what a psychopath. Mm-hmm. And toxicology reports showed that he had cocaine in his system on the day of the murders. And the media would come to call the attack the Covina massacre. Well, I can understand why. That's just, that's just like senseless. I, like, why? Yeah, and it's like, part of me does feel bad, but not because of that incident. It was mainly because of the unfortunate circumstances surrounding his mm-hmm. biological son. Right. And then his and then his wife leaving him for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it, it was an accident that his son almost drowned. Right. I mean, uh, an accident that he's going to live with guilt. And then... Mm-hmm. Even years later, he's still being haunted by his negligent mistake, and then, right, and then having to deal with the anxiety and depression of his wife leaving him, right, leading him to do such yeah. a heinous act. Yeah, and I don't think anybody could have predicted that that's what he, how he was gonna react to, you know, his wife leaving him. And you know, they say um, that time of the year is like suicide season mm-hmm. or depression, depression. season because mm-hmm. people you know some people aren't as fortunate as others or a lot of people celebrate the holidays with family members that have gone on and passed mm-hmm. so like it just brings out the worst in people and then the, the you know how it gets dark early and it's cold mm-hmm. and gloomy i hate this time of the year i'm not even gonna lie you're such a grinch i am a grinch a literal grinch right. within reason mm-hmm. actually i think i read that um I think it was in 2010 the family listed the property it was i think it was just a, land. a ground level yeah ground. a piece of land it was like 12,000 square foot for like 288,000 i think Jeez, just for a piece of grass yeah apparently it's like a very I sought did, after did area not, just is it just a popular like it's a, a popular like subdivision oh it's not like area. oh it's a crime scene i no, but no. i did see in one of the photos you showed me it looks like they had an in-ground pool mm-hmm. so it looks like a nice piece of property so the next christmas murder we're going to talk about today is the 2009 christmas day murder of robert lecomte so around 3 a.m on christmas morning 2009 randall randy chestnut who was the owner of the Drama Club, a gay bar in Houma, Louisiana. Oh, shout out. We've somehow managed to include a Louisiana case in it. Right. So he called 911 to report that the manager of his bar, Robert LeCompte, said that he was on his way home around 2 a.m., but he had never made it. So Wait, he, how, did he, how did he know that? Well, he told... Okay, there. It just... Yeah, I know. So... He asked if police could go to the bar and check on Robert. Well, so the night before Christmas Eve, so this was like early hours of the morning on Christmas Day. So the night before Christmas Eve, there was like a huge fun party uh, or holiday celebration at the drama club, but Christmas Day was also Robert's birthday. 
So the party was like a dual Christmas birthday celebration. So Randy and wasn't actually at the bar. He no. was at his house. Yes. Did he they, was just the owner. Did they live together? Yes. Okay. That's where I was like, how did he know he wasn't coming home if he was at the club? Right. Got it. And uh, I think I'll talk about this later, but Vanity Fair Confidential on ID did a uh, did an episode on this. So that's where I got a lot of this information from. Uh-huh. So apparently like a lot of the people from the gay community in Homa were at the bar that night for the party because Robert was like well liked. Um, well, Randy, who called 911, was very prominent in the gay community in Homa further than just being the owner of the drama club. Okay. Which was like the only gay club in that area. Okay. Like if you didn't want to go there, you had to like drive to New Orleans. Yeah, I didn't think that it was very yeah. well known there. Right. So Randy would often like take in gay men who had nowhere else to go. Oh, that's nice. Right. So Randy and Robert had become friends and they had moved in together a few years prior to this. Okay. So I don't believe they were romantically involved. I think it was just like a platonic friendship. Yeah. Um, So Randy had tried to call Robert on his cell phone as well as on the bar telephone, Mm -hmm. like landline. But he couldn't get a hold of him, which is when he decided to call 911. Because it had been about an hour since Robert Do said he was on his way home. Do we know how far the bar was from his, their home? I don't, but I'm assuming it's closer than it would have, you know, it wouldn't have taken him a whole hour. Or hour right, but I mean, like, so, was it too far for him to drive instead of just having to, I mean, like, I'm have the sure. police do it instead of him, like, taking the time to drive? Right. I get, I don't know, but or maybe he didn't. He was worried, like he was worried that something was wrong, and he didn't know what he was gonna find. Yeah, maybe. So he called police. So when deputies arrived at the drama club, Robert's truck was still in the parking lot, and the front door of the bar was unlocked. Oh no! So when deputies entered the drama club, they find 39-year-old Robert Lecomte, the well-liked and popular manager of the drama club lying on the floor of the bar in a puddle of blood. (gasps) It was apparent that he had been stabbed multiple times. Oh no. The killer also left behind a blood-soaked cocktail napkin, which was found under Robert's body, on which the killer had written in ballpoint pen, quote, you gave me AIDS, end quote. (sighs) LeCompte had been diagnosed as HIV positive in 1995. But according to the Vanity Fair Confidential documentary, they talked to like his mom and a lot of his friends. They said he was not shy about his HIV status. Everyone knew, you know, okay. he was not hiding it, you know, because a lot of there have been people who don't tell anybody. Like they're ashamed, but he, yeah, or he, they don't tell people, and then they infect somebody else. So, but every he was very open about it. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. So. Originally, police thought that this murder could have possibly been a hate crime. That's where I was going with the, the stab, stab, how many times he was stabbed, mm-hmm. and the fact that he was still found in the bar, and that he And the scared. note, and then the area. Yeah. In Homa, I mean, if, if down any, south Bahia. Yeah, I was about to say, if, if mm-hmm. listeners are probably not familiar with the Homa area, but it is Cajun country, mm-hmm. it's bayou, mm-hmm. redneck. Lifted right. trucks, camouflage, mm-hmm. you, you know. Like, and you wouldn't think that those, that yeah. area would be very accepting of, you know, the no, gay not community. No, not at all. But according to the episode I watched, they surprisingly were. Oh, okay. So. And what year, this was in 20... 2009. So, yeah. And 
As we already know, Louisiana is no stranger to gay men being murdered. We covered Ronald Dominique in episode nine, mm -hmm. and they talked about him in the, in the episode. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to our episode yet, Ronald Dominique was a gay man himself who terrorized the Homa area and other areas of Louisiana over the span of 10 years. He raped and murdered 23 men, most of whom were homosexual. Mm -hmm. And according to the Vanity Fair Confidential episode, Ronald Dominique had even been seen in the drama club <gasps> from time to time. Full circle. But as you already know, a year before Robert LeCombe's murder, Dominique had been arrested and was in Angola. So it I didn't even think it could have been him. Match right. those two because I, I don't remember the time frame of right. Ronald Dominique. But yeah, it was the end of 2008. I, you know what's so strange? I bet you that those two cross paths. Yeah, they probably saw each other mm -hmm. quite often. Right. So police thought that there could have been maybe a copycat at first, mm -hmm. but that was just a little tidbit I wanted to add and a little linkage to one of our other I episodes. I like it. I like it. I'm here for it. So. The autopsy revealed that the murder weapon was a screwdriver. Oh my god. Oh, wait a minute. Like, Derek Tudley used a screwdriver. Yeah, and I, and I was about to say the same thing I said in the Derek Tudley episode about the level of force or that the penetration it takes. Mm -hmm. to, it takes to. It gets not stabbed really like a sharp screwdriver. object. Right. The stab wound showed a star type pattern, you know, like a Phillips. Oh, so it wasn't a flathead. That thing no, was like a Phillips, I guess, which is what led police to conclude that the murder weapon was a screwdriver because it was like a bunch of little stars, uh -huh. which they couldn't tell that on the scene because it was there was so much blood yeah. everywhere. So Did they say how many times he was? I just I, saw multiple. So. It was multiple. I want to say 10 to 14 ish is what you kept coming across. Yeah. So, police began investigating and learned that a man named Jarrell Young was one of the last people in the drama club the night that Robert LeCompte was murdered. So, police interviewed him, who said that Jarrell said that he had left the bar when everyone else did before 2 a.m. because he was, uh, Robert was closing up the bar at mm -hmm. 2 a.m. And, and that's the typical, unless you're in New Orleans, that's a typical 2, 2 a.m. is closing time here. So when he was asked by detectives who he thought would want to kill Robert, Jarrell responded in a way that made detectives kind of sit up and pay attention. Made him scared. Mm -hmm. Jarrell replied, quote, I don't know, maybe he gave someone AIDS, end quote. So detectives... Well, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was just a stereotype. Well, and you said that he was really open about it, so... True. But detectives thought it was interesting because at, as of that point in time, the public did not know about the note left by the killer. Oh, that was a, a piece of evidence that was kept mm -hmm. quiet. So it was interesting to them that he would use the same wording, you know? I don't know. I feel like if, me personally, I mean, I'm smart, not mm -hmm. that I'm a killer or I have the mind of a criminal, but... If I leave a note at a crime scene that says that, I'm, I'm not going to bring it up. True. True. But criminals are stupid. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've said that numerous times. It's probably going to be a merch item. But <laughs> So Jarrell told police that he left the drama club and headed home, stopping at a convenience store on the way. And if you remember, he told them he left a, right before 2 a.m. or around 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. But the times didn't line up. 
Did they have surveillance? Yes. Okay. So Jarrell appears on the convenience store footage, but it was timestamped 2.59 a.m. And according to the Vanity Fair Confidential episode, it shouldn't have taken him more than 15 minutes to get from the drama club to that convenience store. So either store. he didn't leave when he said he left, or he did, and then it just... Right. He had a crazy route, or mm-hmm. he backtracked, right. or it just so wasn't logical. Right. That leaves like 45-ish minutes on the on counter floor. And he, he told police that, oh, I was drunk... I was driving slow. He just was pulling out all the stops. Right. But someone that should have taken you 15 minutes, in all likelihood, is not going to take you an hour. I mean, I hate driving. I'm ready to get that right. over with. So that made Jarrell seem really sketchy. Uh-huh. But we'll come back to him eventually. But for now, I just I wanted to talk about another person of interest. So originally, police suspected that Robert's new boyfriend, Michael, they thought he would have been, he was a person of interest. So Michael was at the drama club earlier that evening, but he had left before closing time. Uh, Michael was also the last person that Robert communicated with via text messages, and they confirmed this via phone records, or uh, I think a forensic search of um, Robert's phone. A dump is what they call it. Oh, is it? So police did interview Michael, who insisted that he was at home during the time of Robert's murder. Uh, Michael's roommate, you know, corroborated his story, verified to police that he was home before 2 a.m. that night. So the police cleared Michael. Um, And Michael ended up dying in June 2014. And most people close to him said that he really never got over Robert's death. And that he blamed himself. That if he had only been there, maybe he could have stopped it. Stopped Robert from being murdered. That's so sad. Did they say how he died? No. Uh, I think they said natural cause. I lie. I said no, but I think they said just natural causes. But they didn't How elaborate. How old is Robert? 39. Okay. So, while police investigated the murder and searched for leads, the girlfriend of Jarrell Young called to say that he had beaten her for the last time and that she had evidence that he killed Robert. So, she brought the following to the police. A bloody shirt. Um... A bloody keychain that said his Robert LeCompte and a stack of bloody cash. And investigators concluded that Young planted the you gave me AIDS note to throw them off the trail. So he wasn't a previous sexual partner of Robert's. I was literally, you took the words right out of my mouth. So Uh the perpetrator turned out to be Jarrell Young, who was 23 years old, an ex-employee with whom LeCompte had what was described as a quote-unquote friends with benefits type relationship. But Uh, despite this, Young presented himself as straight, dated women, and he even fathered a child. So he was... He was hiding it. Right. I don't know if he was was confused. Like, he didn't know if he He was was gay. He could have been ashamed. But Jarrell's brother, I forget his name... His brother was gay and was out and proud and actually did drag shows at the drama club. Oh, wow. So, he had a lot of ties to that place. So, did Jarrell have AIDS? Not that I'm aware of. They I think he wrote, they think he wrote the note just to throw him off, throw police off. But can't you go undetected for, like, years? You can't, yeah. Hmm. And not know. Yeah. Right. 
Um, so upon further investigation, police found out that Jarrell collected military knives and had a history of violence and had prior been arrested for domestic violence and illegal weapons possession. So the prosecution's theory was that Jarrell Young needed money because he stole like, I think $4,000 from, from the register. Uh -huh. When they got there, there was no money in the register. But according to Robert's family and friends, Robert was the type of person who would have given Jarrell the money had he just asked. You know, he was the kind of person that would like literally, give you, the shirt, literally yeah. give you the shirt off of his back. So in late November, 2012, Jarrell Young's trial for the murder of Robert LeCompte uh, began, and on the last day of his trial, Jarrell Young took the stand <gasps> in his own defense. Oh, wow. That's almost unheard of. Yeah. And according to the Vanity Fair Confidential episode, Young seemed unhinged and manic, and like he kept looking over at the jury and telling them, I didn't do this, there's no way I did this, uh, there's no way I could have done this because everybody likes me, and... But but that's not a reason. Like right. you had his bloody keychain, you and the T-shirt and his blood. Right. But Jarrell's family, to this day, swears that he didn't do it. His DNA, Jarrell's DNA, was never found on any of that stuff, though. But not long. I think a month or two after Robert's murder, that this is what they said in the Vanity Fair confidential episode. Um, uh, like a month or two after Robert's murder, Jarrell moved into a new apartment. And according to the landlord, he usually paid in all like small bills, like ones, fives, tens. Hmm. I mean, which you would have taken out of a cash register, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, but never. What are the chances of him? I mean, were the the stab wounds to the front or the back or the? I believe his front. His chest area, abdomen. But what are the chances of him not leaving DNA behind? I mean, is that even possible? I mean, I'm if, not he a DNA expert. if he wore gloves, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. But his girlfriend did testify against against him, and I think in the course of things, she kind of changed her story a couple times. Well, of course. But then when the trial came, you know she explained that the only reason she was changing her story is because she was scared yeah. for her life that he was going to kill her or have her have her killed for you know testifying mm -hmm. um i'll send you um i'll send you the episode it was it was actually really good yeah um but a jury did convict young of first degree murder after deliberating for just one hour and he's currently serving life without the possibility of parole at angola so there are apparently a lot of murderers that we've covered that are serving time at Angola. Maybe that just means we cover too many Louisiana cases. You know, this is totally off topic, but I was reading an episode on Boosie, mm -hmm. and he was in Angola for drug charges. Was he? Yeah, that's, that's what, crazy. I was like, wait a minute, why? I thought that's only like murderers and rapists. Like, like that's where you go and die. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't check the credibility, yeah. but it was like a health episode, like um article about his health I think he was diagnosed with cancer like three years ago hmm. um but yeah it was like because I know he was incarcerated for a little while but hmm. like on drug charges at Angola hmm. maybe, maybe he was at Angola because of his um prior record oh true hmm. so after Robert's murder 
business at the drama club slowly declined and the club ended up closing its doors for good in 2014. So five years after he passed away. And like I already said, this case was featured on an episode of IDTV's Vanity Fair Confidential. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you're like familiar with that, but they take like Vanity Fair true crime articles and they do like an episode on it. Okay. So it was titled Murder at the Drama Club in case anyone's interested. Mm -hmm. Um, That shows just sort of an obsession of mine. I Mm -hmm. I love it. I mean, and this one was really well done. Okay. So um, now we're going to talk about the December 2011 murder of Michelle O'Dowd. So Michelle O'Dowd was a 67-year-old woman who was living in Jacksonville, Florida, when she was murdered in December 2011 by someone who she thought was her friend. Ugh, that's the worst. Right. So O'Dowd had taken in a woman named Patty White. She was 40 years old, and she was an ex-girlfriend of O'Dowd's nephew, and they considered her a family friend. Okay. So O'Dowd allowed White to stay in her home rent-free for a month, and she even trusted her with the PIN number to her debit card so that White could go and purchase groceries for them. Mm-hmm. So O'Dowd and other family members would even pay White to clean houses and babysit other members of their Just family because she couldn't really hold a job, uh-huh. so they were trying to help her out. Yeah. And apparently sometime prior to the murder, their friendship kind of ended, like kind of soured, and I'm not sure why, but White moved out. Okay. So O'Dowd has a twin brother named Phil Axt, and he was always kind of suspicious of White. So he was really concerned when his sister didn't show up for work or answer her phone. So Do we know the time frame of her moving out and then I think it was a couple months before maybe. She just I guess he, he kinda of felt like she was the type of person to take advantage. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on December second, twenty eleven, Phil went to his sister's home, which was in a gated community, to check on her and he found her foot sticking out from beneath presents under the Christmas tree. Oh my gosh. Her dead body laid there, buried beneath tons of Christmas presents that were intended for her family, her grandchildren, and her face was bloodied and covered with a towel. Do we know how long she was there? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't think it was very long. Like, so, like, nobody's going to find her here. Right. So, Axe told CBSNews.com that the door was open and his sister's house had been ransacked. And, like, chairs and tables were all turned over. and But her car and her dog were still at the home. Apparently, White strangled O'Dowd, then beat her to death and attempted to hide her body under the tree and then stacked presents on top of her dead body. Oh, wow. That takes a really sick person. Yeah. So White then stole Michelle O'Dowd's debit card, debit and credit cards, and then was subsequently arrested a day later in York, South Carolina, after she was spotted. Where? Where Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. Um, she was uh, arrested a day later in York, South Carolina, after being spotted on surveillance when she withdrew a thousand dollars from two different ATMs in Florida. Using the same debit card that O'Dowd had entrusted her with the pin number. And she withdrew $500 from each ATM. So she was caught on video. All ATMs have video. I mean, even if it didn't, like, they could still track Track that. Oh my gosh, she's a dumb. Criminals are dumb. So 
Upon being pulled over and arrested by authorities, White confessed to everything. Just came out. Laid it all out. Yeah. And like I said, it was like a day later. So that was a pretty quick turnaround. From when she was discovered. Yeah, from when she was discovered. And according to Google Maps, York, South Carolina is about five and a half hours from Jacksonville, Florida. Like 30 to 71 miles. Oh, wow. So I think she was from South Carolina. Oh. So... Police identified the motive behind the crime as robbery, but they assumed something went horribly wrong that led to White murdering Odell. Like, they think, they don't think she went there to kill her. They think she went there to steal from her. Oh. And something happened and... Ran, I mean, ransacked the house, too. That's kind of a factor. Right. This is, so this, I'm showing you a picture. So this is Michelle. Like, she looks so sweet. What a sweet lady. I know. And then Patty is... Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's sad. So, yeah, the Michelle looks like a sweet lady. But that's her, I guess that was one of her dogs, maybe, that her brother said was still at the house. So, family members said that White was basically a part of the family, and they couldn't begin to, like, comprehend what happened, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, they were sickened that she would bury the body beneath gifts meant for children. Right. And under the Christmas tree that Odell took so much pride in. Like, Christmas was her favorite holiday. And she apparently put a lot of time and effort into decorating mm-hmm. for Christmas. So, according to her brother, um, asked, Neighbors of Odell heard someone screaming, but no one called the police. This goes back to, like, episode two, one. If you see something, say something. I literally have that written right here. No way. Yeah, that's so sad. I mean... If you see something, say something. I wrote that. <laughs> I gotta but, stop doing that. <laughs> like, but who hears someone screaming and doesn't call the police? Like, that makes zero sense to me, but I feel like that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe people just don't want to get involved or they're not sure of what they're hearing, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't. So, in October of 2013, White pled guilty to second degree murder in order to avoid the death penalty. I was about to say that was definitely first degree worthy. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was in the commission of another crime, mm-hmm. robbery. Um, and she was sentenced to 45 years in prison. I don't, I couldn't find whether that was with or without parole. I'm not sure. Probably with, but yeah. Just really sad. Like, what is wrong with people? Under the Christmas tree? And at that point, all those gifts become evidence. So those children aren't getting those presents anymore. Right. I was literally thinking about that when I was doing research. But not that they would want them anyway. But, uh, last but not least, we're going to talk about the Christmas Day 2016 murder of Trisha McCauley. So, on Christmas Day 2016, actress Trisha McCauley, who was 46 years old, she had plans to have dinner with some of her theater friends that night. Mm-hmm. So, before we dive in, Trisha McCauley was an English actress from Suffolk, England. I'm probably saying that wrong. Suffolk. Probably. Suffolk. We always slaughter it. So, she was best known for her work in Step Up. She's listed as a stand-in for Jenna Dewan on IMDb. Interesting. Yeah. And for two short films, one titled Never Dream the Beginning and one titled The Paper Girl. I don't know if I've ever heard of those. But she's mostly known for her work as a stage actor in Washington, D.C. at the Washington State Guild. But back to the events of Christmas Day 2016. I mentioned that she was an actress, so Mm -hmm. I kind of want to cover a little bit of that. So Trisha posted around 4.30 p.m. that she was on her way to meet her friend or to her friend's house for her Christmas dinner. So on social media, mm-hmm. okay. on Facebook, yeah. Um, 
I thought I wrote that, but I didn't. Um, she had reportedly already packed for a flight that she was planning to catch the next day to see her family. Um, the article that I read didn't specify, but because she's from England, I'm assuming that's where she was planning to fly uh -huh. to. Trisha climbed into her white two-door Toyota Scion, but never arrived at that party oh, or wow. dinner. And when she didn't show up, her friends began to worry and tried to contact her, but they couldn't get in touch with her. But Trisha had previously fallen asleep once before and missed a get-together. So when they couldn't get in contact with her, they kind of assumed, hey, maybe she fell asleep again. Um, I'm just going to sidebar here that, like, if you don't answer me, I'm going to assume you're sleeping. Me personally? Me personally. Oh, this is true. <laughs> That's a fair assumption. But luckily, you share your location with me, so I you can tell that if you're not at your home. <laughs> right. But when Trisha missed her flight the next day, she was reported missing by her family. So her family and friends started a social media campaign to find her, which caught on pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, she probably knew a lot of people in that in community. In that community, right. So friends searched the route that she would have traveled from her house to the place where the dinner, the dinner was taking place, and police searched her home. Police didn't find any signs of a struggle, just a pan with the scrapings of, the, of a dish she had prepared for dinner. So, like, she cooked it. Vanished. Put, yeah, like she cooked whatever she was cooking for, you know, to bring to the dinner, oh. packed it up, took it with her, and left. But there was, like, no forced entry, no, nothing looked out of place. What, and her car wasn't at the apartment? No. So, the D.C. Police Department shared a critical missing persons report on their Facebook page on December 26, 2016. So, the day after Christmas. Uh, with Trisha's picture and other relevant information, including like, the a description. Of her, like a physical description of her, as well as a description of her vehicle, including the license plate. So, police got their first lead and glimmer of hope when they found that Trisha's bank cards had been used. After the party, or that night, or the. Uh, I don't, I'm not even sure when. I'm assuming after she went missing, her cards had been used. But then police received reports that a man was seen driving Trisha's car. So, police began to suspect that her cards had likely been stolen. So, police released a CCTV footage, photo, not footage, well, a photo of a man captured from CCTV footage um, and asked the public to be on the lookout for him because they thought he was related to her disappearance. Honestly, yeah. So, the next day on December 27, 2016, an individual spotted this man at a pharmacy and called 911. Good job if you see something, say something right. you. So, police rushed to the scene and found that Trisha's car was parked in the parking lot and the suspect was in possession of the key. Hmm. The man's name was Dwayne Johnson, 29, who... Not to be confused with The Rock. Right. Who was also... He also went by Adrian. So, I don't know if that was like a middle name mm -hmm. or... But when police unlocked the vehicle, they discovered a truly grisly scene. Uh-uh. Trisha's body was wedged between the front and back seats to conceal it from view with her legs bound using a seatbelt. So he was just been driving around with her dead body in the car? Yes. For two days. And I'm not sure. A Toyota Scion, that's a little tiny car, but I think it actually has a trunk. You know some of those cars have a trunk, but mm -hmm. you could just peep over the back seat and see the trunk? I don't think that's one of those. I don't think she was in the trunk. She was well, that's what I'm saying. Oh, oh, oh. Like, I... I think there was an actual trunk on that car, but he, did, he chose he, not to No, she it. was wedged behind the front and the back seat. 
and it was later determined that Trisha had been sexually assaulted, then beaten and strangled to death with her own scarf. Oh my gosh. Police learned that, like you said, Johnson had been driving around Washington, D.C. with Trisha's body. So and in that the point, vehicle. it had been two days at least. Or was it Christmas Eve? It was Christmas Day. So two days. Give or take, I don't know what time. On the 27th, they got there, but what kind of absolute monster does yeah. that? So he's been driving around with her in her car for two days. Mm -hmm. her, dead. Her dead body, yes. Her, yeah. And I mean, not that it's super warm in D.C., but still. Mm -hmm. it, it... So according to an article on mirror.co.uk, Trisha's brother posted on social media to update everyone on the status of Trisha, saying, quote, Trisha is gone. They have found her body. Thank you all for your work, support, and love. To all of her D.C. family, I know she truly thought of you that way. Thank you for being there for her all these years. Hang on to each other, end quote. Oh, that's so sad. That is one of the most heartbreaking things I think I've ever read. So, detectives soon discovered that Johnson had been homeless and living on the streets in, like, the weeks leading up to Trisha's murder. Uh, a few weeks before her murder, Johnson had been arrested for stealing electronic toothbrushes from a pharmacy, but there was a lack of witnesses, so he was released and just ordered to stay away from that store. He was also supposed to have a GPS tracker fitted to his ankle, but he skipped out on that appointment and no one ever followed up. Really? The nation's capital and you can't even put an ankle monitor on somebody? Yeah. And I hate to put law enforcement down, but that is horrible. Like, we've got to do better than this. I feel like that's something we say all the time. Yeah, it is. I mean, I guess no one could have known that Johnson would escalate from petty theft to rape and murder. Like, but still, yeah. I mean, no one ever followed up? Like, that is like ridiculous. Warrant, you know, something. That's ridiculous and unacceptable. I I'm sorry, but it is. Mm -hmm. So... According to an NBCWashington.com article, court documents showed that Johnson was arrested six times for alleged incidents in 2016. Oh, wow. In May, on May 15th, 2016, uh, he was arrested for second-degree theft for an incident at Black Lion Market um, on 14th Street Northwest. And I'm not super familiar with these streets, but it, it'll be relevant. So... About a month later, June 10th, 2016, he got in trouble for second-degree theft, assault on a police officer for an incident at Medell's Sporting Goods on 14th Street Northwest. Same. Same street. On September 1st, he got arrested for a robbery, assault with intent for an, robbery and assault with intent for an incident on L Street Northwest, which involved stealing from two men. And then December 12th, and he really kicked it up in December. I was about to say. So, December 12th, second-degree theft for incident at DSW Designer Shoe Warehouse on 14th Street Northwest. Mm -hmm. Then, December 17th, there was two separate incidents. Second-degree theft in both of them. One for an incident at CVS on 14th Street Northwest. And the second, what, the second incident that was second-degree theft was for an incident at Meridian PCS store on 14th Street Northwest. So apparently that was like his stomping ground, his area where he frequented. I mean, yeah, they should have. And he was homeless, so maybe that's just where he was like squatting, I guess. Yeah. So this part is where it gets kind of crazy. 
And I know it's going to make you mad. But, so Johnson, when he was being interviewed by an investigator, well, let me back up for a second. I wanted to talk about all the arrests. Just, I mean, clearly this guy was like a problem. So Johnson told investigators that Trisha offered him a ride on Christmas Day and they had consensual sex, quote, on a curb somewhere. Downfall. Just want to take a second to note that curb was spelled K-E-R-B. So I'm assuming this was from a written statement, but really, K-E-R-B. Give that man a Gary's homeless. He probably is uneducated too. Maybe. So Johnson continued that after he and Trisha had quote-unquote consensual sex. So she offered this random guy a ride and was like, hey, you can get it too? Like, come on, nobody's going to believe that. Right. So, yeah. Um, he said that after they had consensual sex, quote-unquote, she became sad and just started talking about wanting to kill herself. Yeah, probably because it wasn't consensual. Yeah. Well, that's what he says. So, he continues and tells police that Trisha hung herself in the car. I don't think that's possible. But, but couldn't on. tell them with what. How do you hang yourself in a car? I don't feel like that's possible. No. So, he told, he also told police that Trisha said he could use her car money and credit cards. During questioning, he told police, quote, if someone is suicidal and gives you all their stuff, is that illegal? End quote. This dude's a doorknob. Right. So... Johnson admitted to investigators that he picked up a prostitute and drove around with Trisha's body still in her car. And she didn't see? Okay, she didn't say pause. Anything? Like, did, exactly. Did she not see anything? I know she was wedged between, like, the front and back seats, but she had a small two-door car. Like, I feel like anyone else in that car would have easily been able to see the body, so I'm just confused. Right. But if she was also a prostitute, I guess she's not going to exactly call the cops. Right. So... But when investigators asked why he would do such a terrible thing, he told them that he thought Trisha was sleeping and that she would eventually wake up. Sure, Jan. Oh my gosh. So, Johnson also could not explain how he obtained injuries to his hands and his jaw that investigators noticed when he was arrested. So, in September of 2017, Johnson changed his mind and decided to plead guilty to murdering Trisha. His defense argued that he had struggled with mental illness throughout the years and that sounds promising which was a problem that was exacerbated by his addiction to drugs and alcohol mm. which eventually left him homeless but the prosecution believed that Johnson took advantage of Trisha's kindness so according to the prosecution Johnson and Trisha had likely met when she offered to give him a ride because uh, you know her friend said that she would she was the kind of person to do that mm -hmm. so instead of just saying but not the consensual sex part right so instead of just saying, you know, thank you, like a normal person, Johnson instead repaid her generosity by beating and raping her, then strangling her with her own scarf. Like, but Trisha fought. Johnson's DNA was found under her fingernails. Good. But Trisha was only five foot four inches tall, and she was relatively easily overpowered by Johnson, who was almost six foot. Mm -hmm. So in November 2017, after pleading guilty, Dwayne Adrian Johnson was sentenced to 30 years in prison, after which he will be placed on 30 years supervised release. And he will also be required to register as a sex offender for the remainder of his life. Probably, I wonder if I hope it's tier three. 
I'm not sure. I'm, I'm assuming because murder was. Mm-hmm. So according to the mirror.co.uk article, Trisha's memory will be honored with a garden in her name and with a fund to help theater professionals obtain health insurance. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and the garden will apparently be named the Trisha Lynn McCauley Public Herb, Herb Garden, and it's planned to be built in the LaDroit Park Community Garden in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So I think it was uh, like right around the time, 2016, right around the time she was murdered that this article came out, so I'm not sure if it was ever built or not. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, those are some really sad cases. I know. They all are, yeah. you know, but... The last two, that they were very kind people, obviously, mm-hmm. taken advantage of. And they got taken of. advantage of. That's really sad. Um, yeah, I mean, they're even, all really Even sad. Robert. Yeah, even Robert, right. The other one was just a crazy lunatic, but... Right. Well, Bruce, not anyone yeah, else. Yeah, <laughs> no, the, the right. killer, so... All right, guys, those are the cases of the Christmas murders. And before we sign off, we just want to take a quick second to wish everyone a very Merry Merry Christmas and Happy Happy New Year. Year. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys in 2020. Bye. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know, When an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomegirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions. 